giving us an opportunity to remove our rose-tinted glasses, to see the world with fresh sight, to recognize that what much of what is on offer is fool's gold. It might be shiny, it's attractive, but ultimately it's fool's gold. And if we have a new, if we have a relationship with Christ, then we have opportunity to have a new relationship with the world that we live in. And so we want to continue in our study of Ecclesiastes. If you look at chapter 6, the very end of it, we're starting back there, verse 10. So we'll take 10, 11, and 12, and they go to the first half of chapter 7. So Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 through 7, verse 14. If you want to follow along, words are printed in the bulletin on page 6 and 7 on a pew, in the Pew Bible, page 556, or however you want to follow God's word. I'm going to read it for us. This morning, once again, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The other word, uh, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under pot, under a pot, so it is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our Lord stands forever. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray as we approach it once again this morning that you would use it in our hearts and minds, that you would illumine our thoughts and lead us to what it looks like to follow you in this world with all that we have to deal with. Lord, remind us that as we've just sung, that you are the ruler, you are the king, this is your world. And as such, you've written laws and stories into it. Lord, we must yield to your will and your command, so help us to do that as we hear your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's not true that no one needs you anymore. That's how Arthur Brooks starts his newest book, From Strength to Strength. He teaches at Harvard. He's done a number of different things. He's written for the New York Times, and I've been reading this book. And he states in the, that he hears this older woman speaking those words. It's not true that no one needs you anymore. He's flying from L.A. to D.C., and most people are asleep because it's an overnight flight or work, uh, watching a movie. And Brooks is there typing. He's working on his laptop, and he couldn't quite hear the husband's response. But again, the wife responded, Oh, stop saying it would be better if you were dead. Now he really couldn't help but to eavesdrop. And so he says he imagined someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity, someone disappointed at his dreams, unfulfilled, perhaps the career he never pursued, the schools he never attended. Now I imagined he was forced to retire, tossed aside like yesterday's news. So the plan lands and people start to disembark. And he recognizes this man. He's actually well-known, famous. He's older at this point in his mid-80s, he's guessing. But he had been universally beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishments. Brooks writes that he had admired this person since he was young. And as this older, famous man who is stating that he thought he was better off dead in some form or fashion, there was the murmur of people recognizing him. He gets up to the front and the pilot says, Sir, I have admired you since I was a little boy. So Brooks writes, the older man, apparently wishing for death just a few minutes earlier, beamed at the recognition of his past glories. I wondered which more accurately describes the man, the one filled with joy and pride right then, or the one 20 minutes ago telling his wife he might as well be dead. Regardless of if we feel what that man was feeling, we can understand it. This world is often giving us visions of what a good life looks like. And it would seem this man would have that. He had fame. He had some measure of success. I don't know if he was an actor or a politician. I doubt it. Um, I don't know if he was comfortable financially. uh, But he had a lot of what we think would make a good life. Again and again, that's what the world is telling us. And yet for all of the good from the world that we might acquire, that we might receive, it does not necessarily equate to the life that the Lord is calling us to lead and that we would ultimately find satisfactory and satisfying. The good we seek if we are following the Lord in this world will look very different from your Instagram feeds. Or the thoughts of the good life that we are constantly fed through advertisements and television and you name it. And so my theme this morning is this, very simple. The Lord provides us a new vision of the good life. He provides us a new vision of the good life. We've been talking about God's grace being better than gain. We've talked about contentment. And this sort of follows on the heels of that considering some of these same themes from a little different angle. And so I want to 
consider living with unanswered questions and living in the light of death and living out God's will. So let's start with living with unanswered questions. How do you feel about unanswered questions? Specifically, the questions you have about your life. It starts when we're young, and some questions have a very scientific answer. A child asks, why is the sky blue? Now, I don't remember what I learned. I know sort of the atmosphere and different. Someone can tell you. We have these questions. Why is the sky blue? Or maybe uh, something else more personal. Why is the world like this? Why am I hurting inside? And even though we grow up and our questions become more sophisticated, we still have questions like, are we there yet? That reveal our impatience. Or questions about a friend or a family member. Why are you like that? I heard that yesterday and I thought it was my daughter talking to my son. She was talking to an animal. And sometimes we're told as a kid that you'll understand these questions when you get older. And that may be true for some questions, but have you found that to be true for all of your questions now that you're older? Or maybe do you just have more questions than you had previously? I'm older now and there's still so much that confounds me on a regular basis. And if I'm honest, there are many days where I'm asking the Lord to explain it all. How can this be good? And I'm asking why and how long? Much like the Psalms teach us to cry out to the Lord, we ask those questions. But the psalmist, for the psalmist, the answers aren't always found in a specific answer. They are found in a specific trust in the Lord. And that is quite different. We have to release our sense of control or our desire to control. And so verse 10 of chapter 6, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That is put another way, you cannot go against God's will. He's stronger than you and you may not understand it all. It's like the picture that Isaiah provides for us. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms us, forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. So we're constantly wrestling with the creator-creature distinction. And if God's not good, then we have a problem. But the unified testimony of Scripture is that God is good even if you do not understand what he is doing. We learn to love his sovereign grace in our lives, even if we struggle to understand the whys and the winds and the hows. We recognize the truth of Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But you know that doesn't come neatly packaged up, does it? You still have questions. I still have doubts. Verse 11 and 12 continue. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? 
Certainly there's progress in different ways, and we've talked about that before. But have we solved the world's problems just yet? We've made progress in certain areas. We can, we're going back to the moon. All of that's exciting and great, and I rejoice in these things. But we still have war and disease and trouble, don't we? But who knows what is good for man? What's the answer? The unspoken answer to that is that the Lord knows what is good for man. And we can fight against the unanswered questions or we can accept the good that comes from the Lord, even if we don't know right now how it all works together. Verse 13 of chapter 7, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So we have to come to a place with our unanswered questions, a place of submission and trust to the Lord. And that, my friends, is not easy. But we learn to trust him in our joys and our sorrows. We don't get to accept only one as the will of God and not the other. I assure you that I'd prefer to take all the joys and have none of the sorrows. But that's not the way it works. And so it requires a deeper following and a a different perspective on what makes the good life. I was talking to a good friend of mine who's been going through a very difficult time in his family. And yet as I've prayed with him and talked with him, he was reflecting that, yes, God is at work. And that he had prayed that God would do immeasurably more than all that he could ask or imagine. That's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, which we often use as a benediction here. And as we were talking, I realized that when we pray that, that God would do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think or imagine. What does that mean? That means that I don't have the capacity to see how God will work. It's beyond what I can think. And this friend is struggling with that even now because there's a new struggle with a family member who needs some very intense and specific care right now. And yet, because we've learned that God is good, and we remind each other that God is good, and we pray for God's goodness, then we begin in, begin to trust. Even if we say, God, I don't understand what you are doing, or why you would allow this, or any number of other ways we might express that. By necessity, I'm not going to see God's goodness coming sometimes. But I can trust it, and you can too, even if your questions remain unanswered. That's a new vision of the good life. But more specifically, maybe you're still asking, what constitutes the good life? Well, let me encourage you to consider death. Live in light of Death. Now, this is counterintuitive, I assure you, because there are pastors and preachers and people that are writing books and preaching to thousands saying, let me tell you what your best life is and how you can have it right now. Brothers and sisters, if this is as good as it gets, I'm not happy with it. I'd say I want my money back. That's not how that works. 
This is something that we'd prefer to avoid. And we might not consider to be polite conversation. But scripture actually encourages us to live in light of the reality of death. It will not suffice to ignore it. So let me teach you two Latin phrases. Ars morendi and memento mori. Ars morendi, the art of dying. Because death is unavoidable, despite the songs of fools and laughter of fools, verses 5 and 6, that we are so acquainted with and we'd much more prefer to talk about and discuss. We must consider death and the reality of it. And there is an art to dying. We like to think of death as a problem in the past. We think of the plagues, for example, and that's when Ars Morendi came about. In one year, the Black Death killed more than a quarter of Europe's population. And then several waves would follow after that. And the situation so bleak that no one would be left unscathed. Husbands, wives, children died. Rich and poor, noblemen and pauper, priest and farmer, all were vulnerable. And in the 15th century, uh, there's a man who wrote a book called The Christian Art of Dying. He's passed on, but uh, he wrote about the 5th century Europe. And he says, fear of contagion and death prompted parents to abandon their children. Children to flee from their dying parents. Spouses to leave their husbands or wives alone to die. Magistrates and merchants fled the cities for healthier regions. Physicians fled, and so did clergy. But rather than retreating, some Christians pressed into the darkness to care for the dying. And by the 15th century, Christians saw the need to put together an illustrated book, a handbook called Ars Merindi, to help people prepare for death with faith, hope, and humility, and to be willing to relinquish the good life that they thought might be for them, to live instead in the hope of the resurrection, ours Merendi. How about memento mori? might be a little easier to remember. It means remember death. And Matthew McCullough writes, our detachment from death puts us out of line with the perspective of the Bible. So what Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to do is to remember death. Don't shield your eyes from this truth. Don't numb the pain of loss and bury your heads in the sand of entertainment and the anesthesia of this world. Verses 1 through 4 says several things. It's saying, how about verse 2? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, I don't know if you've seen a counselor or a doctor and they've ever said to you, or a pastor, if they've ever said to you, Ah, you're depressed, you're anxious. How about you go to a funeral? But that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is effectively saying. You need perspective on your life. Go walk among the tombstones. And you might see things a little bit differently. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. What is he saying? He's saying this is how you get perspective. This is how you see the world differently. This is how you can live a good life in the Lord, not by the world. And yet, 
we do struggle with this. But this perspective is so needed for us. Because what happens? You get a chance to see what really matters. So this a week ago, Saturday, the University of Georgia was celebrating their second national championship back-to-back. I'm glad to tell you that. You know I'm excited. Yes, thank you. And I watched some of the parade and the gathering at the stadium. And then last Sunday after church, as I'm pulling up the news, I see that a football player and a staffer were killed Sunday night or early Sunday morning, 2.45 a.m. on a road that I have traveled down many a time. Their car left the road, careened and crashed, and two people died. How quickly we can go from celebrating to mourning. And it gives one pause. And for the follower of Christ, it causes us to look ever more for the fulfillment of his promises and to the hope of the resurrection. It's great fun to celebrate. Great things, fun things. We want to do that. And yet, we have to live with this reality. And either you will think of it and work through it and consider what's important, or it'll come knocking at your door in a way that's unavoidable. And so the scriptural answer then is to take this perspective and turn it into a prayer. Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Matthew McCullough again writes, teach me to live with the reality of my death so that I can live in the gladness of your love. That's how we pray. Teach me to live with the reality of my death so that I can live with the gladness of your love. That is the good life. He says, before I can be astounded by God's love, before I will see the beauty of his love more clearly than the problems of my life, I must see my desperate need of it and my thorough unworthiness of it. And this is the foundation of the good life. The art of dying and remembering death following the perspective of Scripture, including here in Ecclesiastes. And actually, Jacob's going to help us think through this a little more in chapter 9 when we get there in a couple weeks. We won't avoid it. I don't know if this is good news or bad news or however you want to think it. You will die. I will die. I guess here's the good news. But in Christ, we have the promise that we will also live though we die. For he is the resurrection and the life. See John 11 for more on that. Finally, living out God's will. Uh, One reason that people think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes is there's some particular parts of the story that are shared that fit. But also these Proverbs that we see in verse 7, as well as other places. And the end of chapter 6 asks, for who knows what is good for man? And verse 1 starts with a good name is better than precious ointment. So it begins to answer that question. Verse 2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning. Verse 5, it's better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise. This whole passage is leading us to living out God's will. They are leading us towards a humble wisdom in this world. 
less of a discernible single theme in verses 7 through 12, but taken together, I do think there's this encouragement towards living with a humility as we seek to live out God's wisdom in our lives and apply it. So humble wisdom requires vigilance to the things of God and the gospel. As you see, wisdom alone is not infallible. There's lots of wise people out there, but it won't keep you from suffering. It does not alone make you a follower of God. It's not a force field against sin, though it certainly is a help. We have to always join the pursuit of wisdom with our pursuit of the gospel of Christ. Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. So the fact of sin and constant temptation will trouble the wise man or woman. So you need humility. Verse 7. You might start something well, but how you end is what will be remembered. Verse 8. Impatience and anger are reflections of pride and not a humble wisdom. Verse 9. Nostalgia is not a practical or wise way to live for God today. Look at verse 10. Why were the former days better than these? Say not. Don't say that. As you get older, that's a real temptation, isn't it? It can be. You look back and you say, well, back in my day, we didn't have these problems, or we didn't do this, or we didn't. Yes, that's true. But it won't help you live for God today. Max Roglin says it is the believer's calling to live faithfully in the present rather than to seek to recreate the past. And while we've talked extensively the past few weeks about the pitfalls of wealth or the incessant desiring of more, Scripture does not condemn wealth on its own. And joined with wisdom, that is the way that we can use what God has provided us in a way that we can honor our Lord and glorify Him. But see verse 12. We must ultimately trust the Lord's sovereignty The will of God is to be desired and generally will lead to the Lord's blessings. Now, there was a Florida man. I know you see that heading all the time. Florida man, Palm Beach, he was injured, taken to the hospital. He told his mom that he was going to be detonating something. It was a pipe bomb. But he wanted to tell her uh, so that when she heard the explosion, she wouldn't be surprised. Well, he got injured, and he comes inside... He's got blood coming off of his hands, and he says, Mom, you were right. Now, I don't think there is any way that we won't be spending some of our time in heaven saying something like, God, you were right. And yet, if you want a new vision of a good life in a fallen world, start by saying, God, you are right. Help me. To live out your will. We will not do that apart from the Holy Spirit of Christ. Or the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit living in us and through us. And desiring that humble wisdom. I'll conclude with this. I had seen Arthur Brooks' book recommended on many of the year-end best book lists. And you know I love to read and I love books in general. And sometimes I even read the books that I own, or in this case, borrow from the library. 
And I know Brooks's name primarily from his writing in the New York Times, but I don't think I'd ever read anything by him before, at least not one of his books. He's written several. And as I'm flipping through the first pages, title page, and then on the inside where you might have acknowledgments and those sorts of things, just before the table of contents, Psalm 84, 5 through 7 was written. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. I appreciate that. He clearly is animated in some way by the Lord to include these words at the beginning of his book and to derive the title from verse 7. We often use Psalm 84 as a call to worship, the beginning of it. Let me read to you the way it ends. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's the vision of the good life we need. No good thing will God hold back when we are walking with him through Christ. And one day that walk will be perfect and we will be at home with him. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and this opportunity to look at Ecclesiastes. There's so much more we could have considered or Maybe I could have even explained better, but I thank you that your work continues by your spirit and in your word. And so, Lord, take your word and use it and indeed give us a better vision of the good life so we might follow you and know your goodness, know your mercy. And Father, we... Look forward to that day when all is made right and we are made whole. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will come to...